When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1951, and Catherine Hepburn's about to get some action. The movie, The African Queen. Hey everybody, welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where we go through the AFI's top 100 films of all time to see if they are still worth their salt, if you should watch them, and if you did, find out a little bit more about them. Uh, it's a long voyage, man. It, we're, we're on a boat. We're on, our, we're on a metaphorical boat made of film. And I feel like this episode is a really interesting one coming up because it's a movie that neither of us have seen, so that will be kind of fun, but we have just talked about a movie that many people have seen. I think we had a lot of new listeners coming in to check out our Raiders episode. So let's check in on some of the comments that we are getting here. Uh, a few of these are from Twitter. This one's from uh, The Phantom. Wow, he got The Phantom. That's pretty... Wow, he had to yeah. really jump on The Phantom. I know. Um, he or she brings up that the monkey in Raiders of the Lost Ark was voiced by voice actor extraordinaire Frank Welker, who is the voice of Gremlins, and... Fred Jones from Scooby-Doo. That is amazing. Especially because I thought that monkey was voiced by a monkey. I did not realize that was a human amplifying monkey noises. You know, the more that we learn about that monkey, the less talented I think that monkey was. <laughs> we had a lot of love show up for Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. I, th- I loved yeah. that. There was a lot of people being like, you know, don't sleep on that. A few people got mad that I don't like Temple. What are you going to do? Well, I mean, I just assume that everyone's favorite is Raiders. And I actually saw a nice even split. People really love Temple of Doom too. It's it's kind of like, I think, whatever your introductory Indiana Jones was. For me, it was Temple. But then I went back, kind of like my first Bond was Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. And I was like, he's the best. Then I saw Sean Connery. And I was like, oh, got it. Or it's like my first drink was like rum and raspberry juice. And then Ooh. I grew up and got over it <laughs> and <laughs> learned to fall in love with whiskey. Um, okay. What else do we have here? Oh, this is interesting. So this is a a DM that was sent to us. I don't know if I should reveal the person's name because maybe he wants to be kept private. But he was a PA in New York. And in the late 90s, he was on set with Karen Allen. And his boss came to him and said, look, whatever you do, don't whistle the Raiders theme near Karen Allen. She will have you fired instantly. And so our friend, the PA, is nervous. But he has to hang out with Karen Allen all day because she's not going to be one to be in a honey wagon. She wants to go out in the city. So he's with her all day. And he says, hey, is it true that you fire anyone that, you know, whistles the Raiders theme? And she's like, no, 
what? That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. So there we go. A, a legend, a rumor about Karen Allen. Whistle away, but with discretion, I would imagine. Who are these people who just go around making up rumors about 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 celebrities losing their minds? Like apparently, there's this big one where you're not allowed to make eye contact with Tom Cruise, and I heard the story that kind of implied that Tom Cruise doesn't know about this, and he's confused when people won't look at him. Well, here's what I will tell you: I think that these people have a lot of handlers who make up rules, and then all of a sudden they become the reality. I worked on a movie with Eddie Murphy. And it was like, okay, everyone be, we have to make sure that the set is completely ready for Eddie. He's got to walk in in a certain way and he, he's going to walk in, do his line and leave. Eddie Murphy came on set and not only was he the most affable guy, but he sat down, chatted with everyone, was so interested and engaged with everyone on set, knew different people like myself from the show I was doing back then. He saw the show called Best Week Ever that I did. He was like, oh, I love that show. I'm like, this is crazy, but I feel like, People are so nervous. Like, I remember one time, I will, I will not say who the celebrity was, and there was such a panic one day because they knew that he wanted ice green tea from Starbucks, but they got him iced green tea from another place that wasn't Starbucks. And he came there, and everyone was freaking out. They're like, we said Starbucks, we said Starbucks. The guy picked up the ice green tea, drank it, didn't even look at it funny. It was like, oh, that was my ice cream tea? Great, thanks. And But I feel like people create these rules because they're like, I'm their handler. I know what they want. I will take care of them. It's like that monkey handler in the, the hangover. He thinks he's as big of a star as Crystal the monkey, but he ain't. Well, anyway, Paul, speaking about embarrassing people, we're about to talk about a love story of sorts on this week's episode. And I just want to give a shout out to my best friend, Eva Anderson, who got engaged oh, this week. Oh, my gosh. Week. I love Eva. She's great. She's the greatest. So... Eva Anderson, John Embaum, much love from both of us to both of you. Yes, congratulations. Enjoy it. <laughs> and now let's talk about another great epic love story. All right, Amy, let's set the stage. The year is 1951. Unemployment in the United States is going down. People are building roadways. Children are finally getting attention from their parents. They're getting guitar lessons and encyclopedias TV shows like I Love Lucy are hitting the air. Birth control is coming into the picture in the United States. We're testing nuclear weapons in Nevada. And this is also the year that the African Queen comes out. African Queen, directed by John Huston, written by Huston, James Agee, Peter Vitel, John Collier, based on a novel from 1935 by C.S. Forcer. And it stars Humphrey Bogart as Charlie Allnutt. Catherine Hepburn as Rose Sayer, Robert Morley as the Reverend Samuel Sayer, and Peter Bull as Captain of the Koningen. Now, Amy, I have never seen this film. Neither had I, actually. This really? is one that, I guess, sailed right past me. I knew I was supposed to see it, and I never did. Well, that's the same way that I felt. This is a movie that I feel like I kind of avoided, like I wouldn't be into. And before I watched it, I wrote down what I thought this movie was about. I said, uh, a scruffy ship captain must take a rich woman deep into Africa for a safari. It's taming of the shrew in Africa. She's a queen and the boat is also named Queen. Uh, and that, that's what I thought. Um, let's hear what you all thought, because uh, I don't know if you all saw this movie either. I think African Queen is the prequel to the Black Panther. All I know for about African Queen is seeing the cover of the poster, and so I'm pretty sure it's a movie based off the Jungle Cruise, the ride at Disneyland. Not sure what African Queen is going to be about, but I have an awful suspicion that it might end up being racist. 
I would definitely bet that African Queen is some crazy racist movie where some white lady goes to Africa and takes over everything. Catherine Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart going down a river searching for an ancient artifact, but it's like the classic Freaky Friday body swap situation where Catherine Hepburn has to do her best Humphrey Bogart impression and vice versa. I think it looks like where they got the idea for romancing the stone from. Um, but if I had to guess, I would say that the After Queen is a ship that they end up meeting on and wild adventures ensue. The African Queen, pretty much like Bohemian Rhapsody, but in Africa. Wow. Uh, <laughs> a lot of good guesses there. Can you tell us, Amy, what this movie is actually about? This movie is about Catherine Hepburn. She's the sister of a missionary. They're both very devout Methodists. They have a small church in a small village in what was then known as the Congo. World War I starts. They get the news a little late because they're just a little bit distant. They have to flee because the Germans are burning their towns, taking away their people. Uh, so she gets on a boat with Humphrey Bogart, kind of a sloppy, drunken Canadian rascal who she's a little petrified by. She's a little bit uptight. They get on this boat, and she convinces him that they should take that boat and use it to blow up a German ship. Um, would not have guessed that was the plot at all. First of all, surprised that this movie was in color. I will tell you that much. I did not know this movie was in color. Uh, as a matter of fact, not only is it in color, but it's pretty amazing because it was shot literally in Africa, and it looks amazing. They did a, a, a great job of shooting on location. Yeah, I didn't realize it was so much of a war picture. I think in yeah. my head I thought it was kind of like a driving Miss Daisy. That's kind of what I thought, too. And, you know, you mentioned that Humphrey Bogart plays a Canadian in this film. It was written for, like, a Cockney, you know, Britishman, but he couldn't do the accent. So, like, uh, he's Canadian. It's true, although I like that they're reminding us that Canada was also Worshipping the Queen. Yes, 100%. Like Canada's part of that flag. So that way when they put the British flag up at the end, you're like, oh, that is his flag. It's yeah. not just he's some American. And by the way, how weird does Humphrey Bogart look with scruff? Yeah, and he's so skinny. Oh, he There's looks, that scene yeah. where he like, takes off his, his kind of skivvies and he gets in the water. And I was like, oh, he's a slender, slender man. Yeah, he looks too skinny. Not like 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 sickly skinny. Not like uh, not like just a small man. Yeah, I mean, he might have – I mean, he, he got cancer a few years after this yeah, and died. But I don't think he had it yet. But he was just – he's also shorter than I ever pictured him being. I know that he had to stand on apple boxes for that end scene in Casablanca where he's like kissing Elsa – uh, you know, but I, I feel like that was the whole thing with him is that he was a short man, but he really feels short in this film. Yeah, and Catherine Hepburn has always been a very slender, slender woman. And then here she loses 20 pounds shooting this film because yes. she gets dysentery. She throws up a lot. And so everybody in this movie is just wasting away, literally. Well, I mean, you know, there's a little funny thing you can see. There's a, a scene in the beginning of the film where she's playing an organ in a church and there's like a bucket next to her. And that was her puke bucket because she was so violently ill. She was puking like Every five minutes. Everyone on this set got sick except for John Houston, director, and Humphrey Bogart because they were just drunk all the time. And I think, you know, from all the stories that you heard, it was basically like they killed off any infection in their bellies by drinking a lot of gin. Yeah, and Catherine Hepburn didn't drink, so she was drinking the water. Oh. Yeah, um, Poor girl. I mean, yeah, this opening. Let's talk about this yes. opening because not having any idea what this movie was about, I got a little freaked out at this opening yeah. straight away because – because, you know, we're trying to be more sensitive as a culture about films about colonialism that yeah. are basically, like, 
religious white people good and everybody yeah. else sad and kind of dumb, which I, you know, we didn't talk about in Indiana Jones, but there's still a touch of that. Like 100%. all the local people, whenever they see a statue in Indiana Jones, oh, scream, yeah, yeah. freak out. Yeah. And like, like they're terrified of everything. And Indy's like, statue. Right. And so this movie opening with, you know, very, very local actors who do have like some tribal modification yeah. and scarring on their faces, singing a church choir or not really singing. Here, let's listen to them sing yeah. and let's listen to... Catherine Hepburn's voice sort of rise in, into the crowd. I actually loved this scene because I felt like right out of the gate, it's a joke on these white people coming to a tribal society and forcing their ways on them. And I thought, wow, this is such a pointed, great way to start the movie. I was like, it felt like it was a very clean take on it. It wasn't like, this is good. It was like, this is bad. Exactly. That's kind of what took me a beat too, to like adjust. Cause you get, yeah. when I got there, I was like, what is happening? You know, I was sort of yeah. on guard with this movie uh -huh. right from yes. the beginning. I heard the forced sound of her voice trying really hard mm -hmm. and, and trying too hard and the strain and the, and the ridiculousness of it. Like the film leaning into how ridiculous it is for her to, to be there, that she is the misfit. John Huston's a guy who started his career as a documentary filmmaker. He's someone who has, you know, a real love for, you know, people and places and, and capturing that. And I feel like this is really his point of view of probably what he has seen. I'm, I'm adding that to him, but it feels like someone who has traveled, not someone writing about or directing a movie about travel. The, the people who live in the area disappear very fast in the yes. movie. You know, the the Germans show up and burn everybody's hut and take them away. And in the in the movie, it sort of seems like they're conscripted into the German military. I think also John Huston couldn't use them as much as he wanted because mm -hmm. they a rumor started to be spread that he and the film crew were like dangerous and cannibals. Oh, and so wow. people just wouldn't show up for their scenes. Oh, my gosh. There's like a love that I think Catherine Hepburn's character has for, for this – Jungle for everything, where she says that God exists here. Yeah. And there's a real respect coming from her character that I wasn't expecting. And she and Bogart know the language. Yeah. I actually found her character to be kind of a loving, sweet person. So when they set her and Humphrey Bogart up as like these opposites, I didn't buy it 100%. I didn't buy that she was like this very puritanical, harsh person. It, it felt to me... I don't know, that she was a little bit more well-rounded than that. Yeah, she seems to me very cloistered. You know, yes. like the only person she's really gotten to hang out with in 10 years who's from where she's from is like her brother. Right. And that, you know, the way her brother even describes her, her brother really early on, her brother, by the way, um, played by Robert Morley, that face, that face oh, is yeah. so perfect for one thing. Before Robert Morley made this movie, 20 years before he made this movie, he was in Marie Antoinette. Uh -huh. He played Louis the Sixteenth. He played the Jason Schwartzman character. Okay, okay. So just picturing that face oh, being like great. the Jason Schwartzman of Marie Antoinette. He got an Oscar nom for it. It's perfect. So I, I'm just putting him in some weirdo context. I but. love it. I mean, by the way, he, you know, when he kind of disappears from the film, I was a little bit bummed because there is something that, I don't know, like sometimes you get connected to a face. Um, yeah, but the, so he gets sick early on and he has this kind of fever dream where he's talking aloud. He's thinking he's back in England. And the way he describes his sister makes you think, oh, man, she's never really gotten to see herself from the outside. Yeah. Here, let's listen to that. I try so hard, you know, to study. 
Hebrew, Greek. I've got no facility. If I don't pass the examinations, I shall volunteer as a missionary. Rose, too. Not comely among the maidens, but she, too, can be a servant in the house of the Lord. Even for such as she, God has a goodly purpose. So two things, so two things, so two things. One, they're basically just saying a guy who's a missionary failed out of doing anything else. Right. He sucked at Greek, he sucked <laughs> at Latin. Like, the lo- the worst people wound up having to do this because they couldn't get a better job. Two, he insults his sister's looks. He makes up this decision for her that she's coming with him. Yeah. She's sort of set up as not ever getting to decide anything for herself. And when he says she's not comely, part of me is like, Catherine Hepburn is one of the most beautiful people. But she's always gotten that, even when she was, like, younger in her career. We're going to get to, like, Philadelphia story and bringing a baby where she's just, like, to me, one of the most beautiful women on earth. But she was always getting accused of being too angular, too sharp. Wow, it's interesting. I wonder if, like, the idea of her at the time carried more weight than watching it now with fresh eyes. There was an interesting thing. I I found this great documentary on YouTube called The Making of the African Queen, Embracing the Chaos. And there was an interesting way that John Huston told Catherine Hepburn to look at her character. In The African Queen, very famous uh, situation with Catherine Hepburn. She doesn't like... Charlie Allnut. She doesn't like this character that the heart character doesn't like. And she's playing it condescendingly and, and, and angrily and, and whatever for the first three days they're shooting. In other words, you are refusing to help your country in her hour of need, Mr. Allnut? Well, I wouldn't put it that way. Just how would you put it, Mr. Allnut? And John is picking this up, you know, he says, this is not the kind of relationship that's going to develop into a good relationship, and that's what has to happen in this in this movie. And so he calls her aside, he says, may I talk to you? He said that he thought that she ought to be more of a lady. And she took umbrage by that because she felt she was a lady. She says, well, what lady? He says, have you ever seen how Eleanor Roosevelt, who she always thought herself as an ugly woman, but when she visited people, she always had this smile on her face. You see, he he kept it really simple. And Catherine Hepburn, in her book, The Making of the African Queen, says that was the single greatest piece of direction she has ever received. She got the character. It was immediate. She understood who Rosie was supposed to be. Yeah, I like this. I mean, because what I see in her character is... A woman who's getting things done in this very formal, passive, charming-ish right. way, like teetering on charming, pulling yeah. it back when she needs to. It's kind of hilarious watching her shape this whole trip, be the motivator motivator yeah. of the trip, be the person who brainstorms how to get past all the obstacles. In fact, let's listen to her do some of that like, oh, I'm not really saying we should do this negotiation where, she, okay. where a piece of their boat has broken. And she's trying to talk him into thinking that welding it together is his idea. Can't we go on the blades that are left? Oh, the prop would be out of balance. His shaft would be all twisted up like a corkscrew again. We'll have to make a new blade then. There's lots of iron and stuff that you could use. <laughs> yeah, tie it on. Well, if you think that would do, but wouldn't it be better to weld it on? Isn't that the right word, dear? Weld it on? <laughs> I you love are- that so much because she's like... Isn't that the right word? Oh, and then he makes a joke and she's like, well, if you think that's the right idea, not letting him off the hook at all. Yeah, she's not arch. And I think when we see road films or movies with two opposites, you really set them off almost as two people that can't even be in the same space. And I think it was an interesting, again, smart choice to make her more 
relatable and she knows how to deal with people like him. Yeah, they don't make her toxically awful and like right. priggish. I mean, there's that scene early on when they're on the boat and it starts to rain at night. And he drunkenly, rainfully stumbles to see if he can get under the tent with her. Yeah. And she is terrified for a second right. because she doesn't understand exactly what's happening. But then she relents nicely. And I thought that whole arc made sense because you can get her being like, why is this drunk man barging into my park? Yeah. And then really realizing we have to put propriety aside and really do this together. And to that point, the only thing that I felt rang false was how quickly their relationship did develop. Like. When they kissed for the first time, I rewound it. I was like, did I, did I miss something? Like, what have I missed here? Because I didn't necessarily buy that it was going in that direction so quickly. Like, you know, in Speed, you're building up to that moment of, like, you know, Keanu Reeves kissing Sandra Bullock. But here, I, I didn't feel like I wanted them to kiss. I didn't feel like it was necessary for them to kiss in that moment. I sort of love it because, I mean, she's probably never kissed anybody before. And this movie really does draw this line between danger and sexual titillation. Like, here, listen to the way that she describes going over their first bout of rapids, which he took mainly to scare her out of wanting to go on this trip at all. And her reaction just surprises him. I never dreamed. I don't blame you for being scared, miss. Not one little bit. Ain't no person in their right mind ain't scared of white water. I never dreamed that any mere physical experience could be so stimulating. How's that, miss? I've only known such excitement a few times before. A few times in my dear brother's sermons when the spirit was really upon him. You mean you want to go on? Naturally. Miss, you're crazy. I beg your pardon? You know what would have happened if we'd come up against one of them rocks? But we didn't. I must say I'm filled with admiration for your skill, Mr. Allnut. Do you suppose after I've practiced steering a bit that someday I might try? Miss, let me tell you something. Them rapids ain't nothing to watch out in front of us. On second thoughts, I wouldn't call them rapids at all. I can hardly wait. But, Miss... Now that I've had a taste of it, I don't wonder you love boating, Mr. Allnut. I love that so I much. I love that She's scene like, as I've well. I've never had anything physical like this happen to yeah. my body before. She's basically being like, I'm a virgin. Let's ride this boat, man. I am on. <laughs> Can I learn how to grab that shaft and steer? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when you see that scene, the last thing that you're thinking is like, oh, there'll be a scene later on where they're both going to be hung by the Germans. Like, you know, like this movie is constantly playing with your expectations of what you expect. Cause I think we know what, you know, the, uh, Bob Hope Bing Crosby, like kind of road picture is. I think we know what a traditional romance is. I think we know what a traditional war movie is. And this movie just kind of fluctuates between them. And in watching it, I felt like the pacing was just off because of that. Cause it was almost like I watched that scene that you just played. I'm like, Oh, I love that. I want to see more of that kind of energy. And then it kind of moves to something else. And then it moves. You could never get comfortable enough in it. Yeah, it is a little loony. Part of what I think makes it so loony is the music, which I hated. Yeah. I really hated the music. I mean, the music is just adding these tones to scenes that don't really have that tone. And it's been doing it way too heavy. It's like, I'm really scary. I'm really comedic. I'm going to do it right in the same montage. I mean, here is just a clip of like 30 seconds of music. All they're doing in the first part of it is getting on a boat. It's not that big of a deal. And then suddenly the mood just changes again. She's literally just holding a basket. Like, no big deal, dudes. Yeah. Finally. 
Yeah. I think you're really articulating something that I was feeling in watching this movie. And I think that this shoot, like Apocalypse Now, uh, again, similarities beyond just being in a boat on a river, going downstream to have an impossible mission, is the insanity going on behind the scenes. You know, this is a movie where they're rewriting the ending because originally these two characters die, spoiler alert, and then they realize, oh, we can't kill these two characters. And and if you were to kill these two characters, like, what what are we doing? Like, That's the most insane movie if after all of that you just kill Catherine Hepburn. Although yeah. they go as far as to put the noose around her neck. It's They go as far to get married. We just have to play the noose scene because okay. it cracks me up. They get captured by the Germans. The Germans don't totally know what they're doing. And yeah. then Catherine Hepburn's like, I'll just tell you, we're going to blow up your ship because if you're going to kill us, I don't really care. I, I want you to know what we were going to do to you. And then they decide to get married by the German ship captain right before he kills him. And it is surreal. I, mean, I, I actually love the weirdness of it, but let's listen to it. By the authority vested in me by Kaiser William II, I pronounce you man and wife. Proceed with the execution. <laughs> and I thought for a second they were going to really die. Like, there's nothing in this that made me think it was going to go the other way. And I think the reason why this movie feels a little schizophrenic is, again, like we were saying, the shooting is these bold personalities going out to do something impossible. At this point in time, they are not um, shooting movies on location, certainly not going to Africa with some of the top talent of the day. You know, they're talking about building camps and Catherine Hepburn has a toilet following a raft where she would go to the bathroom, you know, Humphrey. For like a minute. And then she was like, okay, that's a pain in the ass. I'll just go in the, bu- <laughs> the bushes. It's fine. Uh, you know, Lauren Bacall comes with Humphrey Bogart on this trip, but you know, they're getting, you know, there's a stampede of elephants. You know, I wanted to play this little clip of Martin Scorsese talking about this ending too. You know, you fight a lot to make a good picture, but the greatest enemy is your own preconception. You have to go with what could change and what's there. Um, and I think it's very tempting to take it easy and just rely on what you know you, you can do well, but you have to fight it. And that's why un- unlikely assortments of people, you find them lugging a three-strip cam- technicolor camera through the Congo and getting malaria. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. And, and I think what he just sums up there is kind of the attitude of this movie. It's like, let's just get it. Let's just get it. And I think it was like this creating this stew of a film. It's like, all right, they won't die. All right, let's get this picture over here. Let, let's do this now. Let's go. It just feels like they're grabbing shots. And when jammed together, it's impressive, but I don't know if it feels cohesive. Yeah, it's like scene by scene. It's a crowd pleaser. Yes. And then you put it together and you're like, what? It's like having this meal where you're like, I do actually love bubble gum and pizza and of whiskey on the rocks and all together, right. okay. Yeah, it, it makes for a meal that you leave going like, I liked all those things. And that's, you know, I don't want this to come into a thing where it's like, Paul, you don't like, you know, older films. I very much do. I actually like John Huston films. I like Humphrey Bogart films, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Uh, Maltese you know, Falcon, Maltese Key Largo, Falcon. they did all of these movies Yeah, together. there's so many films that I do like that I felt a little bit more uh, connected to than this film as a story. And I think, you know, it's it's getting rewritten a lot. And sometimes the alchemy really works to make a cohesive story. And sometimes it it's a little lesson. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, it kind of feels like John Huston's brain wasn't totally in the game when he made this. Right. Or like he was passionate about doing this, passionate about being there. Catherine Hepburn was like super passionate about being there too. She loved it. And yeah. she actually got in trouble because she saw this old fort that was um, built by some locals. And she was like, I'm going to climb the wall of that fort and look inside. And the local king was like, excuse me? 
and kicked <laughs> her out. Actually, seeing pictures of Lauren Bacall on the set makes me so angry because she looks radiantly beautiful it's despite crazy. the fact that they're like getting attacked by bugs constantly and like their their beds posts, you know, where their yeah. beds touch the ground. Mm-hmm. They had buckets of kerosene in them because burning ants would just try to climb up their legs while they slept. Oh my god. And Lauren Bacall looks like she's just from a photo shoot. It's I, ridiculous. It's crazy. She really does look like she's on the set of a film. Not like that she's in, not just along for the journey. Not just like hanging out. But yeah, so we should talk a bit about John Houston, though. Yes. Because about why he was there. John yeah. Houston is just kind of like a firebranding weirdo. I think he's sort of like who Francis Ford Coppola wanted to be, mm-hmm. you know, deep down. Yeah. Like he's like his platonic ideal of what a director was supposed to be. Well, you talked about this idea in Apocalypse Now that, you know, this is a director who didn't go to war, who wanted to make a war movie to be macho. And John Huston seemingly to me is a macho guy who also makes movies. Yeah, I mean, John Huston has always just been this daredevil. Like, when he was a kid, he got really sick, and they put him in a sanitarium. Mm-hmm. And the doctors were like, you have to stay here. You have to get better. And he would escape, and he would go, like, swimming over waterfalls and then, like, oh, sneak wow. back into the sanitarium. He was just like, yo, you can't hold me down, man. Like, he was just crazy. I mean, and then after that he got better, he was like, he rode horses. He became a boxer. He became a gambler. He joined, like, the Mexican army for a little bit. And then, yeah, he became an artist. He became an explorer. Somebody who knew him said that he was, quote, Incapable of yesing, apple polishing, boot licking, he instantly catches fire in resistance to authority. Wow. And, you know, there's a quote, and I'm probably going to be misquoting it a little bit, but about John Houston as a director. They said, wherever a camera can't go is where John will place it. And I think that that's an interesting idea for, you know, especially at this time in the 1950s, you know, movies had a certain look to them. You know, they, I think... They don't feel like the scope is outside of a studio or a stage. And, you know, he's doing this really impossible task. And when I think about this film and, and its importance on this list, I think that that really raises it above some of his other films because it really is like this is footage that he's getting of hippos, of alligators, you know, of these rapids. And, you know, they're literally on this boat going down a river, you yeah. know. Yeah, you know, it's actually, you're really right. I mean, it's symbolic in kind of two ways. Because, yeah, a lot of big American films at the time were shot on these studios. Yeah. They felt very, like, closed. It's like you can't see the roof, but you feel the roof. Yeah. You know? And he he actually made this kind of outside the studio system. In a way, he, like, broke out of the studio system not just by not being on the lot, but by being in Africa. And he kind of did it on purpose because right before this, John Huston had this movie he really wanted to be, like, his ultimate, ultimate picture. He did a, a version of The Red Badge of Courage. And he got into all these fights with, like, MGM's uh, Louis B. Mayer trying to make the Red Badge of Courage. He did not get to make the picture that he wanted to make. And so it was almost in defiance of that and, like, being so mad at trying to do a film in the studio system. He was like, you know what? I'm not going to do a film in the studio system, which is pretty rare. Yeah. I'm just going to get all of this money separately and I'm going to go to Africa. And that's really a lot of where the tone of this movie comes from to him. That's really why he was there is, like, how far away can I get from Louis B. Mayer? And he is taking along with him a crew of people who are war veterans. So they are also like, yeah, been there, done it. This is easier. No one's shooting at us. So let's, you know, we're just carrying a camera this time. So I feel like there is this ragtag sensibility. And I think that that answers our question about why it feels a little schizophrenic, because there was no one there saying, you got to do it like this, or you have to hire this person. It was sort of like, we're going to make what we think is good. 
Yeah, and I like hearing all the scrappy stories from the set. I like hearing about how Catherine Hepburn didn't have a hair or makeup woman for the very first couple days. So she was just like, all right, I'll figure it out. And oh. she, like, didn't even have a dressing room. She didn't really have anything. So she found a mirror, and she would just, like, carry this mirror around and be like, do I look all right? <laughs> and, like, one of their first days they shot, um, when they were shooting one of the early scenes when she's still at her church with her yeah. brother, she had her hat on, and John Houston's like, your, hat, your hat's too flappy. And she's like, well, what do you want me to do about it? We're in the jungle. And he was like, you got to get starch. So she looked around with one of the makeup men. They saw that somebody in a hut nearby was, like, boiling something. They could see the smoke rising. So they went over there, and they saw that they were boiling rice. And they were like, can we just buy your rice? And they took the, the rice water, the starchy rice water, yeah. and they used it to make her hat stiff. Like, wow. that's Catherine Hepburn just, like, thinking on the fly. I mean, these are out. badasses. I mean, we talked about Lauren Bacall. She also jumped in. She was a cook on set. She was also like a nursemaid when the crew got sick. Like everyone was, you know, really chipping in. And this is a movie with big movie stars. This is not, you know, oftentimes I think when you think about an independent movie, you work with like uh, actors of maybe less stature, you know, that they're not rising up. Exactly. And, you know, Humphrey Bogart's a huge movie star at this point. It's Catherine Hepburn's first color film, which is interesting. And um, his, too, I think. Oh, really? Although I think, like, I think Bogey was a little bit more of a wuss on the set. I mean, he he acted tough. Like, yeah. there's this story about, like, when they first got there, uh, Lauren Bacall, like, walked into one of the bathrooms, and there was this huge scorpion on the wall, and right. she freaked out. And Bogart came in, and he killed the scorpion. And then I can't really do a Bogart impression. Uh-huh. I'll, I'm just going to do a bad one. Sure. He was like— Baby, this can't go on. We're in Africa, and there are going to be huge bugs. No more screaming. Suck it up. I don't know why I made him Southern. I'm sorry. But also, he was like he was also the most whiny about it. So well, know. but from what I heard of him as well is that he was always viewed as a tough guy. Like people thought of him as a tough guy. They like him and John Houston. I think to most people reading like the entertainment magazines at the time would view them the same way. But he was a more soft spoken, sweet man but also so committed to his craft. Like, he loved acting. Like, and, you know, so much so that they said he never had a script. He had the whole thing kind of memorized and would be one of those guys who would be like, when do you need me? And they said, well, we'll need you in, like, three hours. And he would go lay down underneath, like, a canopy and sleep until they needed him. Like, he was a very go-with-the-flow guy, but not like a guy like John Huston, who, in part of this movie, uh, I think was for him to try to kill an elephant. Um, there is a movie I'm pretty sure that Clint Eastwood made called like White Heart Black Hunter. Is that right? Uh, Wait, reverse. Yeah, White Hunter Black Heart. Okay. Yeah, Clint Eastwood wrote and directed and starred in this movie as kind of a John Houston character. Wait, uh, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer. Clint Eastwood, White Hunter Black Heart. I don't care if this picture's shot in black and white or sepia tone, or we have to make the whole damn thing in animation. Pete and I are going to Africa. There are times in this life when you can't wonder whether it's the right or the wrong thing to do. Not for guys like you and me, kid. You just got to pack up and go. John Wilson, a brilliant, don't-give-a-damn type filmmaker who continually violated all the unwritten laws of the motion picture business, yet had the magic, almost divine ability to always land on his feet. Paul, I hope I don't have to kill you before this picture's finished. He's always been like that. No, he's worse than ever. He's insane. In a well-ordered society, he'd be in a straitjacket right now. So in that movie, he's not playing John Huston. He's playing a version 
of John Huston. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. I mean, like the actress they have playing Catherine Hepburn is just wearing Catherine Hepburn's same costume. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't there the story that when they got to their original location, they told John Huston, like, oh, no, no, you can't kill elephants here. And he's like, okay, let's change locations. And they basically went to another part of Africa where it was legal to kill elephants. Can I just say, what a dick. And also, he didn't kill an elephant, so good. Like, yeah. team elephant on this one. <laughs> <laughs> and while the, you know, the entire production is like this, you know, they're just out there, they're getting it. There are days where he can't even see the actors. And he's like, that was great. And Catherine Hepburn's like, well, you didn't even watch the take. He's like, I'm listening, you know, but he's also kind of living large in Africa. Like he would travel to set in a car and like these uh, little kids would come running up and kind of, you know, waved him and he would treat himself like the King of England and, and wave back to them. This is like a story Lauren Bacall told on the Tonight Show. You know, it's like, I feel like he embraced kind of being a king, but also being a tough guy. It's, it's a weird dichotomy for him. Okay, but how weird is it, though, that it basically just sounds like you're describing Francis Ford Coppola? Is there, like, one type of river dude? Uh, let's also throw your buddy in there, James Cameron, as well. Thank you for saying that, because isn't this movie kind of like Titanic? Yes, it's very so much Titanic. so, yeah. It, it's, like, slightly different social classes and <laughs> with a woman named Rose. Hello. <laughs> I mean, what is it about these impossible directors who want to direct movies on water? Is, is it just the impossibility of it? I think it is just the impossibility of it. And you know what? Why not? Because the impossibility of it gets rewarded. This is our third crazy person making something on a boat movie out yeah. of a hundred movies on I this mean, list. We're only like a little bit. We're not, we're not even a quarter of the way there. And we have three impossible men on a boat <laughs> movies. I mean, it must just work. You must be like, look what they did. They went on a boat somewhere. It was really, really hard. Give them awards. Yeah, I guess Blood, Sweat, and Tears helps you get on this list. And it kind of started a trend. I mean, a couple years after this movie came out, the New York Times did a trend piece in Hollywood mm -hmm. where they said that going to Africa is the new trend in oh, doing wow. things. It had this lead. I actually love the lead of this. It says, this is how it starts. Quote, Beating out Marilyn Monroe and Martin and Lewis in a storm of rhinoceros dust as the most surprising money-making development of the year, Equatorial Africa suddenly finds itself in the middle of a boom. Because the New York Times is always writing trend pieces. Yeah, aren't they the ones that declared trucker hats were in about three years after trucker hats were out? Oh, well, they're always, always the ones being like, hey, LA might be okay to live in, <laughs> maybe. But I don't know, we'll get back to you. You know, after they get out, a couple of things happen. Catherine Hepburn winds up writing this book called The Making of the African Queen, or How I Went to Africa with Bogart Bacall and Houston and Almost Lost My Mind. <laughs> it's a good book. I really love her. She's just a very, like, clear blah, 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 blah writer. It really was kind of the apocalypse now of its time. I mean, those are the only two movies I can think of that we've talked about that have this amazing backlog of documentaries and books and people speaking out and, you know, all these interviews about behind the scenes that, you know, people had stories to tell here. Also in this book, she calls Houston a couple names. She refers to him as the monster. And then she says that as far as his sense of humor, she thought he was, quote, as funny as a baby's open grave. Oh, God. It's so funny to hear Catherine Hepburn take down John Houston in that book. You know, he's a difficult guy. Like in that scene with the leeches that we were talking about earlier, he wanted to put real leeches on on Humphrey Bogart. And he's like, no, dude. But he tried to call his bluff. He brought a leech breeder to them. He was like, but I got this leech breeder, man. Don't you want <laughs> Don't you want to see what his leeches are like? 
I think there's a lot of lore about this film. And whether or not it's true, who knows? Uh, when John Huston accepted the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award in 1983, he told this anecdote. He said, I remember the Congolese soldiers appearing one day at the compound we were building that was to lodge the company when it came. And they arrested our native hunter whose task it had been to furnish the ever-bubbling pot with meat from the forest. It was some days before we learned why villagers had been missing, along with the deer, guinea hen, and monkey we've been eating, what euphemistically we called the long pig. And then in the documentary, long pig. yeah, I, I think, who knows what that is, uh, Guy Hamilton, who's the assistant director, just says, that's total bullshit. No one, no one took away their native hunter and they were eating all this stew of beet. But I feel like it's a story that once you came back, you could tell anything and it felt kind of believable. Maybe John Huston just liked the sound of his own voice narrating something. Because you know what? He did that a lot after he made this movie. He actually, check this out. You know what? I just want to play two of them because I think they're both really, really funny. So bear with me. We're going to do a little bit of John Huston opening narration talk. Ooh. The first one is from Battle for the Planet of the Apes, where he is the voice of the lawgiver. God created beast and man so that both might live in friendship and share dominion over a world of peace. But in the fullness of time, evil men betrayed God's trust, and in disobedience to his holy word waged bloody wars, not only against their own kind, but against the apes, whom they reduced to slavery. <laughs> All right, John, peace between beast and man, you elephant hunter. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> now, the second one, though. I think this one's a little special because it reminds me of an episode we recently just did. Because mm. did you know that John Huston was Gandalf in the Rankin and Bass Hobbit? Ooh. Many ages ago, when this ancient planet was not quite so ancient, long before man recorded his history, it was the time of Middle-earth when man shared his days with elves, dwarves, wizards, goblins, dragons, and hobbits. It's kind of like he's the positive version of Orson Welles. They both were amazing directors who got into voiceovers, but it seemed like John Huston kept a little bit more in shape than Orson Welles and was probably a little less surly. We should do a short list of directors who become voiceover people. I mean, like <laughs> Werner Herzog is yes, so good at it. Yes, you're right. Is there just a thing when you're like a certain type of epic director, you're like, and now I will become a character, and my character, <laughs> who is me as a human, becomes other good characters as a voice actor. I wonder what Christopher Nolan's voice is like. I feel like we don't hear it enough. Yeah, our kind of modern directors, I feel like half of them are like, I'm just going to be cryptic and mysterious. Which yeah. I, maybe that's why I find them all a little boring. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I thought was so interesting about this was its connection to Yet another Walt Disney ride. I know we've talked about this a handful of times, but the African Queen reminded me so much of the Jungle Cruise ride at Disneyland and Disney World. Um, and as a matter of fact, in my research, uh, the designer of that ride based a lot of that ride on the African Queen. So much so that the boat that you're in is essentially a recreation of the African Queen. Yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like it too. I think both the ride and the movie are sort of structured with like, La, 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 Hey, it's some hippos. Okay, cool. Yeah, What's right. up, hippos? 
I do really love the Jungle Cruise. That's I one of my too. favorite. Like, this park is too crowded. I'm going to be on the Jungle Cruise for a while. You get thing. to sit back with a, a fun little captain, not as surly as Humphrey Bogart, and you get away with not getting hung at the end. That would have been a real, like, Mr. Toad's ending. Like, if you go on the Jungle Cruise and at the end you all get a noose around your neck. What a great way to pull in the dock. <laughs> Mr. Toad's is kind of my favorite oh, one. Oh, that's mine too. Really? It's the only ride where you go to hell, yeah. It's You end in hell. I love it. You know, speaking of this boat, um, we have a very special guest today. Uh, she is someone who actually has restored the original boat from the film and operates the vessel in Florida. Her name is Susan Holmquist, and her and her husband, Captain Lance Holmquist, uh, will take you on a ride if you are ever in Key Largo. We have her on the phone right now. So, Amy, there's this really interesting app. It's called Robinhood. It's an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks and, and ETFSs and options and cryptos all commission-free, right? So even if you're a stock market newcomer, you can invest for the first time with true confidence. I have played around in the stock market, and I feel like sometimes it's so overwhelming and you feel like you are being taken advantage of. And this is what uh, Robinhood is kind of taking the guesswork out of. They're not charging you commission fees and they're not charging you broker charges, which means that you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. And it has this like really beautiful, clear design with an easy to understand chart and market data. I mean, Robinhood lets you place, you know, a trade on your smartphone in just four taps. What would you invest in, Amy? I don't know, but this definitely sounds like Getting into the market for people like me who don't know what they're doing at all. Yeah, I know. And if you're on the web, you can check stock collections like the 100 most popular stocks as well as sectors like entertainment and social media and more curated categories like female CEOs. Oh, that's cool. So they have like a list of female companies you can invest in. Yeah, which I really love that idea a lot. And I think that there's a true lack of investing in companies run by female CEOs. So I think that that's awesome. You can discover new stocks and track your favorite companies with a personalized newsfeed, And you can get custom notifications for price movement so you never miss the right moment to invest. And it's a way to kind of experiment in this world without feeling like you're going to be uh, ripped off. So Robinhood's giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you start building your portfolio. Sign in at unspooled.robinhood.com. That's unspooled.robinhood.com. And you can kind of see what it's all about. They're giving you free stocks if you come in from us. And you know what? When you come in from us, it helps the show. So uh, check it out at unspooled.robinhood.com. Hey, Paul, you know what's out right now? Uh, tell me, Amy. It is season two of Big Grande's Teacher's Lounge. is out now on Ear Wolf and in your podcast apps. You know what the show is, right? Yeah, I do, but isn't it behind a paywall? Why, yes, it was. It was behind the paywall of Stitcher Premium, but now it is free, which means you can listen to the show about four incompetent high school teachers who try to keep it together while doing everything wrong with mm. awesome guests. We're talking Lauren Lapkus, Paul F. Tompkins, Carl Tart. You can listen to all of it right now for free. Um, and let me give you a little like taste of what the show is. Um, so this season, the guys are rehired at Hamilton High School after making some lofty promises, like bringing the track team from last to fast and making the school newspaper one of the most popular publications in the world. Uh, their new motto is overpromise and underdeliver. And it stars some of your favorite people like Drew Tarver, Dan Lippert, Ryan Rosenberg, and John Mackey. Uh, you can check out all of season two of Big Grande's Teacher Lounge on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. All right, classes in session. Suzanne, what happened to the African Queen between when this movie wrapped in 1951 and when you had it in your hands now? 
Um, well, the boat was actually built in 1912 in England and shipped straight away to Africa, where it worked under a different name called the Livingston up until the movie. She was renamed after the movie. Um, she kind of stayed there and was kind of a popular boat for the next like 17 years or so. And then she was bought by a gentleman from San Francisco um, shipped back to the States in 1968 and um, worked there as kind of an attraction for a couple of years and then kind of got run down and then ended up in Oregon, worked again as a tourist attraction for a few years, got run down. And then in 1982, she was kind of found in a, a cow field in Ocala, Florida, purchased and brought down to Key Largo by a, kind of a developer gentleman who was um, a massive Catherine Hepburn fan. I mean, that means this boat is, what, 106 years old? I mean, this boat looked like She's it was... She's 106. Yes, wow. that's right. It looked yes. like it was falling apart in the movie. Is it okay if I'm just shocked <laughs> that the boat is still okay? Yeah, yeah. She's built of a really heavy gauge steel. So she's, um, she's a sturdy old bird. She's sunk a few times, more than I even know, I guess, and um, <laughs> has gone through several boilers. But she's um, she's still going. So tell us what you do. You basically take people on tours with the boat. Uh, yes, um, she had uh, been uh, purchased by the gentleman, as I said, Jim Hendricks, and he unfortunately passed away in uh, 2000. But not before he took her around the world twice, uh, freighting her. She's not, you know, okay. that right. that seaworthy. But she's went been to Australia, Canada. She went to the Queen Mother's birthday boat parade in England. Um, he had a lot of fun with her. But um, when he passed away, the boat landed in a trust became um, kind of run down because nobody really singularly owned her and um, nobody really knew what to do with her. And we noticed her as we run a charter business in the Florida Keys, um, kind of looking very run down, but still having so many people show up day after day just to take a picture of this broken boat lying up, you know, up on a kind of a ramp and so we approached the trust and asked them if we fixed her up because my husband's a, a boat builder could we run her in our charter business and so that's what we did oh, so tell me about these people who go on tours are they all fans of the movie you know it's a very um kind of older demographic of people um everybody has a story on why they want to go on her. It's not really particularly for a boat ride because she doesn't really go very far or go anywhere and certainly not fast. They are there because that was the movie they saw when they first got engaged or that was their mother's favorite movie, you know, that was their father, you know,'s favorite film actor. So everybody has a connection connection or, you know, uh, enjoyment of the movie. We get quite a few steamboat enthusiasts, too. They like the boiler and the steam engine and things like that. Like, what do you think is the enduring appeal of this movie? Like, what what do you think makes it stand out from the rest? For, for me, knowing a lot about the movie, I feel that she was kind of a groundbreaking movie for her time. In those days, uh, movies were typically filmed in movie studios and never on location. And um, John Huston, the director, had went out with the control of the big movie studios and secured private investors 
And that was kind of groundbreaking. And the second reason is she was one of the very first films shot in uh, Technicolor. And I mean, if we were talking about boats, I mean, in boats in film history, between the Titanic and James Cameron's uh, movie or uh, the Apocalypse Now uh, PT boat that was going down the river or the African Queen, I mean, you know, I feel like the African Queen has the most personality out of all those ships. Oh, absolutely. She does. There was one other one. There was a boat from uh, on Golden Pond that used to sit next to the African Queen. But that one kind of fell apart in the end. And and obviously I had another Hepburn connection. But uh, uh, but yeah, she's got the, you know, such such character. I, I still think she's even got a few more adventures in her. Well, now, Suzanne, I'm curious because I see that you guys do dinner cruises as well on the boat. And I'm curious, do you let people drink gin? (laughs) <laughs> not too much <laughs> but we do have some very old antique gin bottles and what people love to do is to take that picture with them pouring we just put water in it and they just have that picture of them pouring the water overboard and that is super significant you know to a lot of people and they love it i mean do people show up in costumes have there been like yes Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Several times. And we've had um, weddings, funerals, you know, um, everything on that vessel. There has been uh, wedding, um, you know, renewal vows as well is very popular. She must have she must have done 30 or 40 different events like that. Any executions? (laughs) (laughs) well i love the fact that you know you and your husband captain lance that you both work on this boat together i mean that seems like its own love story oh well um i'm not sure if he'd beg to differ but but kind of (laughs) because i'm from britain and um i guess i'm the straight laced uh, sensible one and he's (laughs) he's a bit more like uh, the bogey character the maverick type of person um (laughs) i i definitely um you know have a love of uh, film and television i was an editor for the bbc myself for years so even though I'm here and we run a charter business together, it brought back a passion of mine from before. And that's why I, I just love the Queen. That's uh, so great. Well, thank you so much uh, for spending some time with us. And uh, let just let us know. So if you're down in Key Largo, how would people find you? Um, people find us. It's not a huge place. It's very narrow. Okay. They've been the islands and stuff. So we're right at Marmarka 100, um, um, right as you come through the Everglades and hit Key Largo. You just go a, a few miles further uh, south, and there we are at Marmarka 100 at the Holiday Inn. I love it. And bring your own leeches for that yes, great photo and own op. gin. Yeah, yeah. And your own gin. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yep, take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Amy, you and I know, as freelancers, that the right hire can make a huge impact on your business. When you hire me or Amy, we're going to come in, we're going to save your ass. But, you know, maybe you don't know how to hire me and Amy. Well, that's why it's important to find the right person. And where do you find them? Well, instead of uh, posting on job boards, who does that? What, are you going to sign into your Yahoo uh, email account where you could get on the uh, AOL message boards? No, okay? 
You need to get on LinkedIn. This is going to be a company that's going to help you grow your business. It's the world's largest professional network. People go to LinkedIn every day to grow professionally. I know this to be true. My mom just sent me a LinkedIn. I'm going to be part of her network right now. Uh, But 70% of the U.S. workforce is already there. And LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on who they really are, their skills, their interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities. I mean, this is a pretty impressive app. Yeah, I mean, the idea that 70% of the U.S. workforce is already there, that is awesome. Also, I will say, as a journalist, I sometimes track down people I'm trying to find on LinkedIn because everybody is there. I mean, they are saying right now on LinkedIn that 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities. So where are you going to find them? You're going to find them on LinkedIn. They're right right there, being open. They're not on uh, job boards, okay? That's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. Businesses rate LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. Hurry to linkedin.com slash unspooled. Get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash unspooled to get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com slash unspooled. Terms and conditions apply. Well, Amy, let's maybe do uh, an episode at one point on uh, the African Queen. We'll get down to Key Largo one time. We'll do our first live show in Key Largo on the African Queen. We better hurry. I mean, you know, the seas are rising. Oh, yeah. We got to get out there. Amy, let's talk about this movie in the cultural context. It comes out, you know, I think in the beginning, distributors are like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? You know, Humphrey Bogart looks gross with this beard. This is not the Humphrey Bogart that we know. You know, Catherine Hepburn looks old. We can't sell this movie. Yeah, they were basically like, why are you doing a romance with two old people? Which, Catherine Hepburn's only like 44. It doesn't read old. old, But yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, I guess we still hear that today. We're like, Bridges of Madison County, what a ridiculous idea. Wait, it made a bunch of money? Oh, and then they're still just like, all of the grumpy old men, what a terrible idea. Yeah, but blah, it's made money again? Like, they're just so... It's who so would funny. think that there is a demographic that if you make movies for them, they'll come out and see it. <laughs> um, but I found it to actually be very interesting to think about where this movie falls. It's 1951, and this movie comes out at the same time as Death of a Salesman and A Place in the Sun. And, you know, Bogart gets Best Actor. This is the only time he gets Best Actor. Which shocks people. They're thinking it's going to go to Marlon Brando. Well, because Marlon Brando is representing this new type of acting, method acting. And, you know, I I think in many respects, you know, John Huston will say, like, he did method acting, too, because they were there. They were in the moment. And he was not telling them when the camera was rolling at all times. But, uh It's interesting because you can kind of see this push-pull of Hollywood, which we kind of get into, which is like the new is coming. But in this moment, they double down on the old. We know Humphrey Bogart. We know Catherine Hepburn. And this movie kind of gets accolades at this point because I think they're pushing off this new wave of, quote-unquote, like dangerous movies or new ideas coming in. Yeah, I mean, at that awards ceremony, everybody kind of thought that Streetcar Named Desire was going to get Best Picture. And when it didn't, there were audible gasps. And then also, actually, let's play a clip of a bogey getting the Oscar because you can hear in the audience how excited they were for him. Humphrey Bogart in the Well, this is sort of a proud night for Hollywood. Bogey's coming down that aisle, which a moment ago may have looked like the last mile to him, but right now you can bet it's a stairway to paradise. The enthusiasm in the audience is great, as you can tell, and it's his second nomination and his first Oscar. It's, um... It's a very long way from uh, the heart of the Belgian Congo to the stage of the Pantages Theatre 
And I'm very glad to say that it's a little nicer here than it was there. I, uh, I just want to pay a, a slight, as a matter of fact, a very big tribute to Mr. John Houston and Miss Catherine Hepburn uh, because they helped me to be where I am now. Thank you very much. You know, he's um, the last man born in the 19th century who actually won uh, a Best Actor oh, Oscar. I didn't know that. Yeah, and um, they wanted to do a bit uh, when he got the Oscar. Say, if you win, what you need to do is pick up the Oscar and stare at it for a minute and just be like, it's about time. And he, he said that he was so nervous in the moment he forgot to do his bit. But, you know, it's it's interesting because it's it's that kind of award where you are happy to see him win, but it also is staving off the eventuality of what is, uh, you know, right around the corner. It's true. I mean, I kind of wrestle a little bit with, like, Catherine Hepburn maybe should have won more than he did, but then also being like Vivian Lee was so good in Streetcar, I can't be mad that she won. And also being like, you know what, Catherine Hepburn got nominated for 12 Oscar nominations. Right. And she won four of them, so she's fine. Yeah, she's fine. But there's a little bit of also, Catherine Hepburn got paid half as much to do this movie as he did, and they both had the same amount of ants around. And wow, how times have changed, right, Amy? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, this this movie only won one Oscar uh, for Best Actor. It was nominated for Best Actress, uh, Best Director, Best Writing, and Screenplay. You know, it was interesting we just played that Academy Awards clip because, you know, who presented them the Oscar, Greer Garson. She was actually in a radio play version of The African Queen. I know we talked about this like back in Double Indemnity and things like that. And I pulled a clip of Greer Garson doing Catherine Hepburn's part in The African Queen. And Humphrey Bogart actually reprised his role. So take a listen. We've come to the end of our journey. I pray for you to be merciful. Judge us not for our weakness, but for our love. And open the doors of heaven. Charlie and me. But I just thought it was interesting to hear someone else uh, do the part that's so kind of, you know, associated with Catherine I Hepburn. had no idea. And you know what's so funny about that is when Greer introduced the Oscar to Bogart in that clip, I was thinking, man, she has that same kind of old-fashioned way of yeah. speaking that doesn't really exist. And the idea that she literally voiced the same sort of voice. Yeah, I want to get to the bottom of why Catherine Hepburn wouldn't do the part, but yet Humphrey Bogart would. Uh, you know, for her double indemnity, they both did the part. So I, I wonder if it was just a money thing even back then. Maybe you should have paid me just as much as him. <laughs> um, and interestingly enough, it's the 11th most popular film of 1951. It's not the most popular film. And it leads me to ask you this question. Is this movie here because it represents old Hollywood and it's looked back upon as this kind of like, that was the classics and that's our tip of the hat to the classics? Because I would argue, you know, there are better films of Humphrey Bogart that aren't on this list. Yeah, I like this movie, but also at the same time, I mean, it's number 65 on the list. It's not even on the IMDb top 250 movies of all time, which is interesting. I mean, I know the IMDb list is a little scattershot, but that's, you know, saying something. But yeah, like if it wasn't the biggest, the biggest, biggest, biggest hit of the year, if it wasn't like representational of what the audience wanted to see, if it wasn't representational of what the Oscars wanted to award, yeah. if it's not that representational, I feel, of Katherine Hepburn or Bogart, 
it's kind of a weird, like, shoe you dredged out of the river and then put onto this list for reasons I'm not entirely sure of. Yeah, I just think it's sort of like something that people know. Like, I know what the African queen is. I could tell you what the poster looked like. I, I can, I know stills from the film. I think I'm taking the tack that you had with Apocalypse Now. Can you disassociate the making of it from the actual picture? And I think when you talk about this movie and the fact that this movie was so kind of, oh, my God, the stories, they almost got run over by a stampede. You know, Humphrey Bogart got a bug between his feet and, you know, someone from the Congo had to, like, burn it out. Like, it mythologizes the film, so it becomes synonymous with the film. Exactly, because so much of my point about Apocalypse Now was that I think they are rewarding the making of it as much as the final film. Yeah, and it feels the same thing here. Uh, you know, I would say that you know, we've watched a lot of these movies, and I think I've been pretty fair in my appreciation for all of them. It's just something that I think there are moments that I really liked and moments I felt like are, all right. You know, it's a, I don't know if the movie congeals as much as the ideas behind it or the coolness behind it. Yeah, well, let me read one of the only reviews to kind of take it for, to task okay. a little bit. You know, because most people did really like this movie. It's such a likable movie. Yeah. It's hard not to like 100%. the movie. 100%. I mean, they're great in it. Um they are. I like their chemistry a lot. Me too. I like watching her blossom so much. Mm-hmm. I really like watching her blossom. And I will, I like watching him become more nobled, him become yes. more confident of what he can and cannot pull off. I love I love all of that, but that exists in other movies. Uh, so Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, he wrote a review of it called, quote, In Lightest Africa. And this is what he said about it. He said it was a slick job of movie hoodwinking with a thoroughly implausible romance. He said the main tone and character of it are in the area of well-disguised spoof. He calls the romance so personally preposterous and socially bizarre that it would take a lot of doing to be made convincing in the cold, clear light of day. Uh, But in the brilliance of Technicolor and with adventure intruding at every turn, any attempt at serious portrayal would be not only incongruous but absurd. Uh, He describes Hepburn thusly. He says she has a crisp flair for comedy, but that she's a caricature of a prissy female in her high choke collar, linen duster, and limp cloth hat, and that Bogart is a virtual burlesque of the tropical tramp, just one cut and a very thin one above the ripe meatiness of the clown. And he says that their romance is the screen's least lustful and least likely seduction scene. I agree with that. And I think maybe there's an issue at play here. And I was thinking about this last night a lot when I was watching it, which is you often see road movies with buddies. Like you don't see romantic road movies that much. I'm sure there's a few, but like- We got a couple and happen when night's going to come up on the list. Of course. Sullivan's Travels. Sullivan's Travels. Great. But like to me, it's like when I think about like, like a great buddy road movie, I wonder if like you can do both tones- and make it kind of work together. Because I think I love a romantic comedy. Give me a Notting Hill, I'm all in. But also give me a Midnight Run, and I'm all in. You know, and I feel like this kind of does a little bit of both. And I feel like I get short shrift in this one because I don't really feel the buddy thing and I don't really feel the romance at the end of the day, even though I like many scenes in it. I think I feel the romance. I think I feel it a little more than you do. Just because I see these two people who probably assumed they were always going to be alone. You know, mm-hmm. Bogart, you're a mailman. Do you think that he feels like he's going to be alone? Yeah, I think he feels like, I don't know, a roll of the die took me here. The Zocahedron took me here. Right. And this is just what I do. Like, I'm just going to be this dude drinking and not really trying to engage with the world more than just being a friendly dude who, that, that's a weird scene. He throws the cigar and everybody fights to grab the right, cigar. Yeah. And I think she was never really, she never really had like marriage or love on the table because she was taken away from England and she was here. And so I think that there's a little bit of like, this is our last chance about it. I do love the 
that kind of scene at the end when, you know, he has the fever and she's praying to God right before the storm comes. You know, there is something, and I, and I did feel moved by that scene, and I did love them on the boat at the end as well. You know what I love is right at the end when she says, oh, we're having our first quarrel. Oh, That's yeah. the cutest way of ending a fight ever. You know, as we're talking about this movie on the list, let me throw a little detail at you. In the 1998 AFI Top 100 Movies list, this movie was number 17. What? Yes. And it dropped all the way down to in the 60s. So that's yeah, interesting. it dropped almost 50 points. Yeah. So that's interesting. It was 17? Yeah. That seems wild. But it seems more indicative of, you know, an older generation kind of putting this film on the pedestal. Same way we talk about Ben-Hur going all the way down to 100. You know, it's – I wonder – if this movie even drops further when we get to the new list, which may or may not ever come out. It's true because what I've been thinking a lot about is Francis Ford Coppola and the people of the 70s, their buddies are the people voting. And they're right. like, love that dude. Check, check, check. Right. Of course he's on the list. And does that just mean like John Houston's friends all died? Well, yeah. you know what? I think but there's yeah. a certain thing where you you lose a familiarity. Like I wouldn't put this on a list of 100 because I hadn't seen it. And I think as you get further and further away, less and less people are seeing this film. I, I think, you know, you know it's a movie, but, you know, I think every other movie we've talked about, even High Noon, which is a film that I didn't see, I, I understood a little bit more. You know, I think I would even vote that one on the list more easily than this one. Well, you know, there's not really a Simpsons. I, could, I really? couldn't really find one. I pulled a clip from a more recent Simpsons episode called The Burns Cage. Okay. Which is one where Lisa Simpson decides she wants to be an actress, but they're doing a school production of Casablanca, mm. not African Queen. But we there is it, a but... dude who barges onto the scene being a Humphrey Bogart impersonator. All right, I'll so take it. I was like, you know, that's as close as we're going to get. Let's hear this, like, Simpsons Humphrey Bogart. I'm proud to announce Rick will be played by... I'm looking for a down-on-his-luck heel named Skinner. Uh-uh. You've got the part. Milhouse, you're the understudy. Understudy? Both those words are horrible. Well, I mean, I think we've said it all about African Queen. Uh, let's hear what you think. Let's continue the conversation on our uh, Facebook Unspooled group or on Twitter. And you can also have a conversation on the Earwolf message boards. As always, we implore you to rate and review this show. Uh, we're getting new listeners, and the reason why we're getting new listeners is because you're telling people. So thank you for that. We appreciate that so, so much. But now, Amy, it's time to roll that die. All right, Paul, let's roll this die. Let's see what happens. Where are you going to take us on an adventure? We got... We got 60. Ooh, 60. Duck soup. Duck soup? Very excited about duck soup. Oh, my gosh. This is great. Ah, the Marx Brothers. Duck soup. Here we go. And I think it's our first official comedy. Official comedy, I guess. Oh, yeah, do you count the general as a comedy? Oh, I do. And I was going to say swing time, too. But it's our first talky Full comedy. Yes. This, yes, <laughs> yes. With all of those caveats, yes. And I'm excited to do this. Okay, what should I call in? All right, how about this? Um, there's two Marx Brothers films on this list, so let's make this one very specific to Duck Soup. What we would like you to do is call in and sing from the Fredonia anthem. Uh, we're going to actually post the lyrics up so you can see it, and we're going to edit together to create a new uh, anthem for Fredonia, which is, of course, the place where Groucho Marx is installed as the leader in this film, and uh, we'll see what we come up with. Hey, hey, 
And you can give us a call at 747-666-5824. That number again, 747-666-5824. Okay, uh, so great. We cannot wait to hear your singing voices and watch Duck Soup with you. It's available wherever you can get movies. It's on YouTube. It's on Apple iTunes. Uh, I'm sure you can find it in plenty of other places as well. All right, Amy, we will see you next week for Duck Soup. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season 3 has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, Season 3 is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, (laughs) Jazos. Ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.